0: Amen. Children, you are dismissed to your classes. Adults, you can be seated. Apparently, uh, Minnesota just beat Michigan. This is coming up on my... (laughs) I've got to learn to turn that stuff off. Again, welcome everybody who is here in person and, and worshiping with us and everybody who's online and being a part of this gathering. My name is Brian Colbertson. I'm the teaching pastor here at Refuge. We're in our second year of uh, going from Christmas to Easter and working our way through the Gospel of Luke. I'm calling it Luke 2.0, and this time we're calling it From Jesus to Christ. We're watching Jesus the child move towards being Christ our Lord and Savior. Now, I'm a relatively new Christian, 15 years now, which for some of you who are young, I guess that's not relatively new anymore, but I'm still learning and I'm still growing. And because of that, I've got a lot of questions about God. And I find that the longer that I am a Christian and the more I read the Bible and the more definitely that I study the Bible, the more those questions don't decrease, but they actually increase. And so I thought this week, I'm going to do my sermon maybe a little bit different, I would just go through, um, Karen and I were talking, we had a little date weekend, I guess this weekend, and and got away, and we've been talking back and forth, and and I was talking about how I prepare for a sermon, and really what I do is I read the text, and I just start circling words or lines or questions that I have as I read it, and then I try to research those questions or think through those questions or meditate upon those questions, and so questions typically is what drives kind of my sermon prep and and, then my teaching, and so this week, I thought I would just share with you as I went through the sermon just those questions. And you don't have to answer the question out loud. In fact, don't answer the question out loud. I just want you, as I ask the question, begin thinking of the answer that you would give or maybe go to for that question. And so my first question that that I usually have been coming to through this series, and we had a discussion on this uh, as a family over dinner one night, is when did Jesus actually know that he was the Christ? When did Jesus know that he was God in the flesh? When did Jesus know that he was a part of the Trinity? And if you go to the Bible, it never answers those questions per se. And you can go to libraries and there's books upon book dedicated to that idea. But those questions are complex. They're mysterious. And then those questions lead you down rabbit trails to more questions like, If God is omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere, how did that work as Jesus, who is God, was having his diaper changed? How did he fill the heavens with his glory as Mary comforted him or changed his diaper? If God is omniscient, meaning God is all-knowing, did Jesus then, who is God, know that he was God as an embryo in the womb? If God never changes... It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God never changes, then why a couple weeks ago when Jesus was in the temple, it said he left the temple and continued to grow in stature and wisdom. Growing means changing. Here's the one that always gets me. Where does the God side of Jesus end and the human side of Jesus begin and vice versa? I said those are difficult, complex questions. But we're given some clues to Jesus coming to terms with him knowing he's the Christ, which was my original question. We saw a few weeks ago there at the temple that Jesus did know something about his divinity when he said, I'm in my father's house. Did you not know that's where I would be? He's recognizing there that he is God's son. We know that he eventually figures it out because later as an adult, he absolutely knew who he was. In John eight fifty eight, he says, Before Abraham was born, I am, which is God's name. He clearly is stating, I am God, and he says it over and over at the end of his life. From a heavenly perspective, Jesus has always known that he was God. That's clear. But from an earthly perspective... We can skip the Mary, did you know debate question that we had at Christmas time. We could sing, Jesus, did you know? Jesus, when did you know? Last week, we looked at John the Baptist, if you remember, and he's this hipster, camel-clothed, bug-eating, wearing voice in the wilderness. And he comes out, and he's, he's wild and crazy. He's speaking on behalf of God. And he's calling people to repent, repent, and turn to God. And John introduces the world to this new thing called baptism, this outward sign of a decision of making that turn towards God. Only two of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of the four include the birth story of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. But all four Gospels include the baptism of Jesus. And so it must be important. It's a short text tonight that we're going to go through, but it's a lot to unpack in that short text. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. I'm using the New Living Translation, and I'm going to begin in verse 21. And Luke starts like this. He says, One day, when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. Our boy, John the Baptist, he's been making a name for himself. He's bold, he's biblical, he's passionate. His ratings are sky high. Crowds are now waiting in line like they're at Century Park, waiting to get a COVID test to be baptized. And I've always envisioned this scene. You know, I grew up in a, in a religion, but not as a Christian. And then I became a Christian. And, and I've read this story many times. And I've always envisioned it that, that John is there and he's in the Jordan River and he's he's preaching and he's calling out those nasty Pharisees, and people are being baptized, and there's crowds coming around him, and all of a sudden he looks up, and there's Jesus. Jesus is walking towards him. And, You know, God shines a spotlight on Jesus, and the crowds part like the Red Sea, and here comes Jesus walking down the middle with his long, blonde, flowing hair. (laughs) And John looks up for a moment, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But that picture is wrong, just as it's wrong of Jesus having long, blonde hair. That's a Renaissance painting, not reality. Luke paints a much different picture. He says, One day. One day, just like any other day, crowds were coming to John the Baptist to get baptized. Here comes Jesus, and he gets in line. And Jesus doesn't cut to the front of the line because we know that's not who Jesus is. Jesus gets in line, and he waits. And so now I start reimagining that story of seeing Jesus standing in line, waiting to be baptized by John, striking up conversations because, you know, that's what Jesus did. He said, what brings you here today? Somebody says, oh, I'm coming to get baptized, whatever that is. And Jesus says, have you, have you met this prophet before? I hear he's pretty eccentric. And the guy said, yeah, I heard he eats locusts and wild honey. That sounds kind of nasty. And Jesus says, what do you think about all this talk about repentance that John is preaching. The guy says, I don't know, I, I, I got a lot of stuff to repent of. I'm a tax collector. I've done some bad stuff, so I'm not really sure this is going to work for me. And finally, the tax collector goes up, and he's in front of Jesus, and he gets baptized, and Jesus, man, he's just screaming and yelling and applauding, and he's praising God, and he hugs the man. And then John the Baptist looks over after he baptizes that man, and he's still yelling, repent, repent, turn to God. And he sees Jesus, and he says, Jesus, uh, you're in the wrong line. Matthew records this same event. He says John did look at Jesus and was like, I think you and I should trade places because uh, you're perfect. I'm not. Shouldn't you be baptizing me? So why would Jesus get baptized? That's a question I had as I studied this text. I put that question on Facebook earlier this week saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling working through this a little bit. So I thought we'd just work through that question together tonight. First of all, we know that John the Baptist told us that baptism is for sinners. So true or false, I'm going to give you an easy question to start your night tonight. Jesus was a sinner, true or false? You can shout that one out. Low-hanging fruit. Way to go. You guys are great. Hebrews chapter 4 says he was tempted. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said God made him, Jesus who knew no sin, to become our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why would a sinless Jesus then, if baptism is for repentance of sin, why would Jesus get baptized? And so I'm going to make this a little easier for you. It's like trivia night when it's a really hard question at the restaurant. They're having trivia night. They give you multiple choice because they they know it's a tough one, right? So I'm going to give you multiple choice answers on this one. Why would a sinless Jesus get baptized? Option A, Jesus was baptized to validate John the Baptist's ministry. That's a pretty good option, right? I mean, John started his ministry before Jesus. John got a word from God. He preaches repentance. He institutes baptism. And so perhaps this is Jesus saying, John is getting it right. He's doing what God said. Y'all need to listen to John. It's option A. Option B Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners. Again, in Matthew chapter 3, that I referenced earlier, John the Baptist is a little confused. He says, Jesus, shouldn't you be baptizing me? That's a pretty legit question. John knows Jesus, they're cousins. John has gotten divine revelation from God. He's the last great prophet of the Old Testament. But even John the Baptist isn't prepared for a Messiah that would humble himself like this. But let's think about it. If Jesus could be crucified between two thieves, two sinners on a cross, then why could he not be baptized between two sinners in the river? Why could he not be baptized by a sinner? And so perhaps in this option perhaps Jesus identified himself with sinners by undergoing their baptism to show us that one day he would identify with sinners by undergoing their death. It's option B. Option C, Jesus was baptized to illustrate the necessity of baptism that is a Christian's first act of obedience. There's some scripture definitely to back this one up. Matthew 3:15. Jesus is responding to John and he says it, meaning his baptism, should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. Seems like a pretty clear answer there. Matthew chapter 28, this is after Jesus is resurrected. He gathers around his disciples. He's still pouring into them. He's still teaching. And he says, and Jesus came to them. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit descends upon the people. They're all speaking in tongues. The crowds are again gathering around, seeing what all the commotion is. They think the people are drunk. Peter's like, nah, it's too early in the morning for that. We'll do that later. Then he proceeds to preach perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. It says the people are convicted Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? We believe what you're saying. What should we do? It says, Peter replied, and he sounds an awful lot like John the Baptist. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't say, repeat this oath, say this little prayer, and you're good. He says, turn to God, repent, and be baptized. goes on and says, those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added that day to the church, about 3,000 in all. A, B, C, or D? What's your answer? I only give you three, right? A, B, or C? D, none of the above. E, all the above, which (laughs) I think that's how I got through college, answering (laughs) C for degree. And if there's an E, go ahead and go with that one. But the reality is the Bible doesn't say. So all the above seems like a pretty good answer. But the Bible doesn't actually give us an answer. But here's what we know for certain. Is that before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he's about 30 years old. He's going to have a ministry now of about three years. Before he begins his earthly ministry, he humbles himself to do what he's asked us to do. This very simple act. Get into a body of water. Allow somebody else who is a believer to dip you beneath that water and use that as a symbol of your commitment to God. God is very complex and complicated. That's why we worship him. But being a Christian is really quite simple. How do I start? I want to be a Christian. I'm ready for this Jesus thing. do, Do I sell all my possessions? Is that how I become a Christian? No. Do I need to construct a cross on my house, maybe hang out a flag, put a bumper sticker on my car, memorize the entire Bible? No, nah, be baptized. There are so many things God could have told us to do as our first act of obedience as one of his followers, but he chooses something, something so simple, he chooses water. Get into the water. And that kind of makes sense because water plays just a huge role in our world. Water is how we're knitted together in our mother's womb. Water is what we drink to survive. We can't go more than a few days without water. We need water to take a bath and not smell bad. Now we we bottle up that water. We torture people with water. Countries fight over water. Many third world countries, that's how diseases are transported through the water and kill people. Right now we worry that the temperature is going to rise four degrees and water is going to cover the entire state of Florida. That would be bad for us insurance agents. (laughs) But water not only plays a big role in our world, it plays a big role in Scripture as well. In the beginning, if you remember, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and the Word of God speaks, and the water is separated, and He creates the world. There's water there at the great flood, washing away most of humanity and washing away the sin. Moses parted the water of the Red Sea so that the people could run out of slavery and into freedom. Jesus called his disciples while they were fishing in what else but water. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus healed a blind man by spitting, which is water, into mud and putting it in his eyes. Jesus wept tears of water when Lazarus died. He spoke of himself as the living water. And then when Jesus came to the end of his life, the water was still there. The government washed their hands of their guilt in a pot of water. And Jesus bled blood made from water to wash away our sins. Let's go back to Luke, back to the baptism of Jesus in water. And we're told as he was praying, as Jesus was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended upon him like a dove. First thing I want you to see in that that short text is that Jesus is a man of prayer. I think I could have done an entire sermon series on all the times throughout Luke's gospel of Jesus praying. He's praying here at the baptism, probably in line, probably during the baptism. He's praying now after the baptism. Jesus prayed before every major event in his entire ministry. He prays before he chooses his disciples. He prays for people by name, even his enemies. At the end of his life, he's there praying the most intense prayer in the garden. And the last thing Jesus does before he dies, he commits his spirit to the Father in prayer. That would be a good sermon series to go through every single one of those. Maybe we'll pick up a few. But why did Jesus pray here at his baptism? And what was Jesus praying for here at his baptism? Again, Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know. But I believe, and this is, again, a personal opinion, that he is praying for affirmation, that the ministry he is about to begin is the right thing. And he's praying for strength. And I think he's praying for those two things because it says this again. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended upon him like a dove. I think now we know what Jesus was praying. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. But see, the Spirit does more than fill the atmosphere. The Spirit, the invisible God, makes Himself visible. And He chooses, we got water over here, now we're talking about doves. Why does the Spirit decide to come as a dove? I don't know if you think of any answers there. Some say it points back to that great flood I mentioned earlier, back to Noah. And, you know, the dove goes out from the ark and sees if there's any dry land and comes back with a branch. And he shows that the water has subsided and that there was now a new world and a new hope for the people. And maybe those who were there that day watching Jesus being baptized and John says this is the son of God, the lamb to take away the sin of the world. Maybe they're thinking back to God saving those few people in the ark. From the flood. And they're thinking, oh, maybe Jesus is now the greater Noah. Maybe he's come to build an ark that will save us from the flood of sin and death. Maybe it is that God used a dove because in those days, just like in our day, the dove represented peace. Dove doesn't have any talons, the dove is not a predatory bird. And so using a dove is a sign that Jesus has come to bring peace into the world. But I think this is the best supported answer, and it's the one I would go with if I was taking the test, that God used a dove so that we would look all the way back, remember, to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering like a dove over the face of the water. The Spirit of God is there hovering over the faces, face of water at the start of the creation of the world. And now here is the Spirit of God again hovering over water at the beginning of the new creation. It's okay, we're, we're at the baptism now. And we've got Jesus, we've got the Word of God being baptized. And as he prays, a dove, just the Spirit of God, hovers over the water and descends upon Jesus. And then in verse 22, we get this, and a voice from heaven, which is the Father God, said, you are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great joy. The three parties who were there and active at the creation of the world, the Father God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, are all present here at this baptism. Letting us know, I believe, in no uncertain terms, that just like the creation of the world was a project of a triune God in three, so it would be the redemption of humanity and the creation of the new world. The Trinity. That was a tough one for me. You want to talk about confusing and frustrating as a, as a Christian? That was a tough one for me when I was trying to come to my faith. And I had worked through a lot of the stuff, and that was a hard one for me to, to overcome because I just I couldn't understand this, this Trinity concept. And um, Karen and I, we were first dating. We were in high school. I wasn't a Christian. She was. And we used to debate our faith a lot, which challenged both of us and probably frustrated both of us. And we would have these long discussions about, you know, Christianity and Mormonism and back and forth. And we'd always get hung up on this Trinity thing. And I'm kind of a jerk. And so I would just make her explain it to me over and over. So that she would see the absolute absurdity of this three in one God. So I would say, I'd say, Karen, let me get this straight. There's there's like these three gods, right? And and they just hang out together all the time. They're like little buddies, the, the three gods. And Karen say, No, there's not three gods. We only believe in one God. It's monotheistic, it's it's one God. And then me again. Okay, so so there's one God. But depending on what kind of mood he's in the day, he puts on a different costume for that day and and acts like Jesus or the Spirit or whatever. And Karen would say, no, there's only one God that exists as three persons at the same time. It makes absolutely no sense. It it made no sense to me. And even when I finally started going to church after we moved to Florida and I started getting on board with a lot of the, the stuff in the Bible and a lot of the stuff that the pastor was teaching I still couldn't come to terms with this idea of the Trinity. And so in our church, we would sing that song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And it would go, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And when they got to that part of the song, I liked the rest of it, but I would mumble that part of the song because I'm just like, I can't get on board with this God in one. Last Saturday, we went out to dinner after the service, and we always ask Emery what she learned in Sunday school, and, and they're usually following kind of the same path that we're following over here, and she says she learned that God is like an egg. Her Sunday school teacher had used the, the egg as an illustration to help explain to a nine-year-old the Trinity, and, and that's a valid way. For a young kid, that's a very valid way to try to explain the Trinity, that God is you know, both the shell and the yolk and the white part of the egg. But as adults, we have to see that, that that denies the unity of the Godhead. If you divide the egg into three sections, you no longer have an egg. You have three distinct, unalike, and unequal parts. But we keep trying. And in life, we try to figure out, well, how can we express the Trinity? And the egg's a good one, but okay, let's, not the egg, but we'll go with water. You know, you got that one guy in your small group. He's like, God is like Water. Water can be a liquid, H2O can be a liquid, it can be a gas or a vapor, or it can be a solid, it can be ice. And so that's three different things in three in one. But the problem is no molecule of water can exist at at all those different stages at the same time. It can only be one or the other or the other. So the other person in your small group will be like, well, God is like a husband and a father and a son, but see, that denies the distinction of the, the individual persons of the Godhead. That's just one person. You can't be all those things at the same time to people. Unless you're from Kentucky, and then you can. <laughs> Sorry. That was bad. I shouldn't have said that. John would be telling me, repent, repent. Here's what God is like the sun. Okay, the sun. is is like God, and, and the sun has light, and the sun has heat, and so that's three in one, and it's all still part of the sun, but light and heat are creation of the sun, so that one doesn't work. Three-leaf clover, that's been a popular analogy. I've Googled it this week. A three-headed man, that's a terrible one. I don't know where that one came from. We all know the Celtic tattoo, you know, the three circles interwoven together. I've almost got that one many times. Somebody said one times one times one equals one. That's the Trinity. The best thing I could find out there that that came the closest was a music chord. You know, when you play the piano, if you play a C chord, it's C, E, and G. That's, That's three chords Three separate notes, but those three notes play this, this chord together. But you can separate them, and they still play notes. And you can put them together, and they still play the chord. And so they each have their own sound. They each have their own identity. I had a harder time poking holes in that one, but the reality is there aren't any good analogies. And these are all helpful, but there's no really good analogy for the Trinity because God is unlike anything in our reality. He's God, and again, that's why we worship him. And so it's confusing As the Trinity is, and all the great questions that we can come up with about trying to understand that, and the great illustrations we try to use, it's within the confusion of the Trinity that I think our faith actually begins to make sense. Athanasian Creed, this is what it states. This is an old creed trying to explain the Trinity. It says, "...we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence." It's a verbal way of trying to express God. One God and three persons. One God and three persons who have eternally known each other. One God and three persons who have eternally submitted to each other. Three and one for eternity, loving each other. And so as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Father speaks. And what does he speak? He speaks words of love. He says, this is my son, whom I am pleased. Now, if you were taking a test right now, and I was your teacher, I'm going to give you some really easy bonus questions here, all right? Some bonus questions. These are like the really easy ones, just so you can get a few extra points and and whatever. Is, Is this baptism of Jesus before or after the ministry of Jesus? Well, it's before. I'll give you the answer. Is this before or after he's done any miracles? Is this before he's cast out any demons or after? Is this before or after he's raised dead people? Or before or after he's healed any sick people? Or is this before or after he's gone to the cross to pay for the sins of the world? We know it's before. But what's he been doing since he's came to earth? He's been a baby. He's been a carpenter. He's done a lot of mundane stuff. Nothing that impressive. And yet God loves him. God is well pleased with him. God the Father loves his Son simply because he's his son, the end. And so as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends upon the Son. He rests upon the Son, meaning he's taking up residence with the Son. There's permanence with that. And so here, with this baptism, we get a glimpse of what's been happening in the life of the Trinity for all eternity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, loving one another, submitting to each other, and glorifying each other. Cornelius Plantiga, he's a theologian, he says it like this. He says, "...the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other." God's interior life, their flow, overflows with regard for others. It's this picture of God just revolving and orbiting around himself within the Trinity. I'll tell you another story about Karen and I in our early dating days. Um, it's relatively early in our relationship. And there came that moment when it was time to say those three words. You know those three words. It was the, I love you. And so finally get up the courage. We're there together, and I'm like, Karen, I love you. took a lot of courage to to get those words to come out of my mouth. And Karen, out of an abundance of caution, she replied, thank you. (laughs) Probably because I was such a jerk arguing maybe (laughs) over the Trinity. That hurt. It stung, but I'm not a quitter. And so a few weeks later give this another try. I mean, we're either going to move forward with this relationship or not. And I said it again, and that time it went a little better, and I heard the words that I had longed to hear back the first time. She said back to me, "I love you." How good does it feel to know that you are loved by someone? I mean, that that feels good, right? How how good is it that the same person that you are crazy about is also crazy about you, that the same person you adore higher than anything in this world also adores you just as high, that the same person who you've put at the center of your life has put you at the center of their life. That's a picture of what God has enjoyed for all eternity within himself. That's why scripture says that God is love. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have been pouring into each other, adoring each other, serving each other, seeking not their own glory, but the glory of others forever. And that's why I say the Trinity is so important as the foundation of our faith. Because if that God created us, it's not so he could have people to worship him or to love him, because he already had that. I mean, and our love and our worship is not going to be anything near the love and worship he gave to himself. God spoke us into existence, not so he could receive love, but to invite us into his creation, into that relationship of eternal love. Let me ask you another question. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he get that he didn't already have? I mean, when Jesus died, what what did he get that he didn't already have? Did he get worshipers? No, he already had that. Did he get adoration? He already had that. Did he get fame? He already had that. He already had all of that. What did Jesus get that he didn't have? Nothing. And so instead of getting, on the cross he gave. On the cross, God moved out of that eternal orbit that he had been in for infinity past. He moved out of that and he came and he orbited around us. The love that he has enjoyed for all eternity he came to offer to us. See, real love, and I'm not talking sentimental love, I'm talking about real sacrificial love, it serves others. Real love defers to others. There's no one person insisting that you orbit around them, but instead, real love, you orbit around each other. You want your marriage to fail? Insist that your spouse orbit and center their life around you, that you are the center of your universe. You want society to fail? Then make your needs the highest needs above everybody else's. That'll be a true key to the failure of society. The Trinity is utterly different than that. No one member of the Godhead insists that the others revolve around them. Instead, they voluntarily submit to and revolve around the others. That's our God. And we were made to be a part of that love we were made to be brought into that kind of eternal joy and happiness and so how do we jump into that orbit of love of revolving around each other well we do what jesus did baptized in the name of the trinity the father the son the holy spirit see at our baptism we are buried and united with the son At our baptism, the Father speaks, and he says those words that we sang tonight, you are my child, you bring me great joy. He says it to others, this is my child who I am well pleased with. Imagine being just perfectly pleasing to God. Scripture says we are. As sinful and as wretched and as rebellious as we are, that's the new identity. That's who he says we are in Christ. Scripture says the Father loves us like he loves Jesus. The Father is pleased with us like he was pleased with his Son. The Father wants good things and has good things in store for us just as he does for his Son. And so at our baptism there's Jesus, at our baptism there's the Father, and at our baptism there's the Spirit who comes down to rest upon our hearts and to give us that peace. And that joy and that patience and that love and that power to transform our lives and that power to walk through trials and temptations. And so as we step into that eternal orbit, the expectation then is that we invite others in as well. That we give away that love that's been given to us. That we serve others without expecting anything in return. That we deflect glory and try to raise up and build up others. And so tonight is a night of questions. And that million-dollar question is, when did Jesus know he was the Christ? When did Jesus know he was part of that trinity? And maybe he's thought it for a long time. But again, this is my opinion, what I believe. It's right here at his baptism. Only three times in all of the New Testament do we hear God audibly speak. It's at the transfiguration, Just before Jesus' death, he speaks, and it's right here at the baptism. Ancient Hebrew rabbis sometimes used a practice called stringing pearls. It's where a teacher would weave together different parts of the Scripture to make a point. And so they would pull from the Torah, they would pull from the prophets, they would pull from the Psalms, and they would pull it all together and use all different parts of Scripture to illustrate a point. What God does here is that stringing pearls of pearls at Jesus' baptism. When he says, you are my son, it's a direct quote from Psalm 2-7. When he says, whom I love, that's directly from Genesis 22-2 when God is speaking to Abraham about his only son, Isaac. And when he says, with whom I am well pleased, he's speaking the words of the prophet Isaiah. And so God pulls together all of Scripture, the prophets, the wisdom, the Torah. And he takes all the sections of Scripture and he points them right at Jesus. He says, this is what all scripture has been pointing to. And beyond that, in that moment, those are the words that Jesus needed to hear. Those are the words that Jesus had to hear before he began his public ministry. He needed that confirmation of who he was. He needed that strength to endure the trials to come. And I'll say to you tonight, those are the words that we all need to hear. That confirmation of who we are, that strength to endure, our invitation to jump into the orbit of God's love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to be here together with other believers tonight. We thank you for your word that is so profound and teaches so much. And we're thankful just as much for the questions that it brings, that causes our hearts to meditate upon your glory, upon how complicated you are and how simple we are. God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for uh, baptism and what it brings to a believer's life. We thank you for the grace and mercy that comes right along with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we close tonight, just want to make you aware of a baptism event. So there is an opportunity. If you've not been baptized and not not followed Christ's example, and you've not been buried and risen up with Christ and united with Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit, um, we try to give that opportunity every so often here. And so uh, somebody has already came to me wanting to be baptized, and I said, well, let's get a date on the calendar, and then let's invite others as well. And so March the 6th at 10 a.m., We'll do this. It's a Saturday morning at our home out in Alva in the pool. We'll try to heat it up so that it's not too cold, but we're going to have a baptism event, the entire church is invited, because we want to be there, and we want to applaud, and we want to praise God for somebody who is baptized. But if you've not been baptized, and it's something that you want to consider, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Actually, a couple years ago, gave a sermon that really takes through all the, the questions people tend to have about baptism, and I'll probably share that with you as a starting point. And we just want to talk about it, and if, again, just for some quick bullet points. Um, we're a church of a believer's baptism, so we don't baptize very young children. We want believers to make that choice or that decision. Decision to be baptized. We believe that any believer can baptize you, so it doesn't have to be the pastor or somebody with some special gifting to baptize people. Any other believer can baptize you. We practice, practice baptism by immersion in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we believe your baptism can be public because we want to celebrate it as a church. But if you would rather do it in private, which is what I did because I was older and been around church a long time and finally came to the decision, you know what? ought to be baptized, and Karen took me into the pool in the backyard on a Saturday night, and we did it right there with just our kids and us. So it can be public or private, um, but we want to encourage you in that if you've not uh, been baptized before. This week, I encourage you, read Luke's gospel. I took you through kind of how I worked through it with the questions, and so read it. Let it stir up questions. Let it challenge you. Let it point you to worship a God who you will never fully comprehend or understand. God bless, love you all. See you next week. Did I pledge my entrance for the purpose of progress to a priest or a prophet? Stay sick.